You're listening to The Semi-Filled Writer. This is a show about my life experiences, my love for entertainment, and of course, my failures. Hi everyone, welcome to episode 11 of The Semi-Filled Writer. Sup, Eric? Hey, I'm here again. Yes, you are. Welcome back. I was just looking at the calendar earlier this morning, and I realized that today would have been the start of the French Open. We've been... (sighs) Without tennis for months, we had events canceled, and then this was the next biggest tournament out there that, unfortunately, we can't watch now. Yeah, that is that is rough. As much as I love most every sport, tennis is one of the hardest ones not to be able to just turn on every day and see what's going on. So, yeah, missing a Grand Slam, never a good thing. And I'm sure we would have known the outcome. I mean, Rafa's going to win, like, his 50th French Open, that's but what that's the the French point. Open fun. Yeah. <laughs> But the adventure getting there is just as entertaining. Sure. All right, we're going to go straight into this. Um, This is also Memorial Day weekend. This is a very meaningful holiday in my life. I've known people that have enlisted in the armed forces. I had a family member that died in active duty. You know, there's a lot of uh, films that I've seen about war, and they affect me in a different way. But one of the movies that was more powerful to me than any of the others that I've ever watched was Platoon. And so that's what we're going to be talking about. We're going to do a film review. Um, do you remember when you ever came across the movie? Yeah, I mean, the, the first time, I, I would have been way too young. I wouldn't have seen it in a theater, theater obviously. Uh, sometime when when I was a kid around middle school, I would say someone rented it. And I remember watching Uh, pieces of it didn't really fully get it all and so it wasn't really until later sometime in the 2000s can't remember exactly when 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 um, as a real noteworthy film it's something that you have to see I think a group of my friends and I got together and we watched it and and that's when I remember watching it and being able to actually understand you know what's going on in the movie yeah I think I saw it in its entirety when I was in college and I can't remember the details but I think I actually sought it out. Like, who seeks out to go watch a war movie, especially it's an anti-war one of those movie. movies that you have to though. Yeah. It's 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 a good like it's it should be on your list if yeah. you haven't seen it. I think what happened was it it did win the best picture at the Academy Awards in the eighties, and I think at that time, in my effort to watch more movies in general, I was seeking out those best pictures as a film student maybe it was like required watching possibly (laughs) but i feel like i had to watch it and see what it was that made it so special so i wasn't mad that i watched it it's one of my favorites and so we're gonna go into some more discussion about it see if it stands up let's do it today so let's start with the summary to refresh your memory platoon is a story told through the viewpoint of chris taylor he is a u.s soldier in the vietnam war and assigned to the 25th infantry division Their mission is to eliminate the North Vietnamese army, but their time in the jungle causes a great deal of tension and trauma. Chris tries to find his place within a platoon that is led by an inferior lieutenant and two sergeants with very different ideologies. And their efforts to win the war come at the expense of infighting, watching their comrades die, and tormenting innocent villagers. Overall, this film gives us a harrowing view of war and its psychological toll on the soldiers that have to be there. Platoon was released in 1986 and written and directed by Oliver Stone. The film stars Charlie Sheen, Tom Berenger, Willem Dafoe, and countless others that we're going to bring up right now as we get into also known as. So there are a lot of very recognizable names in this film. And for some of these, we're just going to go through real quickly uh, and just come up with the first role that we know him as. So 
Let's start with Keith David, who played King. Keith David is Captain or Admiral Anderson to me, always will be, no matter anything else that he ever did, uh, just because of how much I love Mass Effect. Yeah, so this is a video game. It's a voice <laughs> role. He's, yeah. he's known for his voice most, more than yeah, and one Yeah, and one of the iconic performances in that game, Anderson is, is a great character. And so, yeah, Keith David, always going to be Admiral Anderson. All right, Kevin Dillon, you did not watch Entourage, but he's he's going to be Johnny Drama. Okay, I'll give you that one. That I don't have good. one for him, so that sounds good. All right, uh, John C. McGinley, he was Dr. Perry Cox in the long-running comedy Scrubs. Mm, okay. So that's the main thing I know him as. Um, Johnny Depp, number of different roles. Yeah, Johnny Depp, for me, he's, he's either Gilbert Grape or Donnie Brasco. I know some people would probably say... Captain Death Jack Sparrow, Sparrow but, but just from when I first started seeing him and realizing who he was, he would be either Gilbert Grape or Donnie Brasco. I like, I like earlier Johnny Depp than later Johnny Depp. <laughs> yeah, I agree. And then Forrest Whitaker. Um, his best role was Idi Amin, but Forrest Whitaker's a very likable guy, and so I want to think of him in a more positive role. So he'd either be Charles from Fast Times at Ridgemont High, or there's a movie that he did called Ghost Dog, The Way of the Samurai, and that was a pretty cool movie there. So I would think of him in those roles. Yeah. One of those uh, FBI guys or whatever it was chasing Van Damme around in Bloodsport. He was in uh, Bloodsport. No, for me, though, there's one that's really coincidental because I'm playing the game Jedi Fallen Order as we're recording this. Uh, and so he he had the role of Saw Guerrera. He was also in Rogue One. Uh, and so he's he's does the voice acting for Saw Guerrera, who makes an appearance in the in the video game. Um, now let's go a little more into detail with uh, Willem Dafoe. There's two roles that I remember him from. He's been in so many movies. You forget that he's in a lot of them. But for some reason, I, I know him more as, I believe, as an agent, Paul Smecker in the Boondock Saints. Mm-hmm. Um, or more recently, he was John Wick's mentor in the first John Wick film. And then also Family Guy, I always think of the, the sketch where Willem Dafoe is under Stewie's bed. There's a funny <laughs> clip of that. So random. Um, do you have anything for Nothing, Dafoe? nothing different, nothing to add. All right. What about Charlie Sheen? Good old Carlos Irwin Estevez. <laughs> real name, real name, yes. Uh, he's Ricky Vaughn for me, Ricky Vaughn. Wild from, thing from, from, yeah, Major League. from Major League. And how about uh, Tom Berenger? A Jake Taylor from Major League. I Same think for movie. both of them, I would go with Major League. That's funny that I always forget that those two guys were in both Platoon and Major League together. Their roles, I guess, are just so different that it doesn't register that they worked together in multiple films. But I, I would agree with those names, too. I also find it funny that Charlie Sheen, he did a number of serious roles in the 80s, maybe early 90s, and then for some reason just committed to being in comedies. And that's really where a lot of his success has come from as of late is just being... Maybe maybe didn't want to get stuck in a jungle for, for weeks with Oliver Stone ever again. Yeah, we'll get more into that <laughs> later. Too much work, too much work for that. Okay, we'll go into heroes and villains. I wouldn't say there's a protagonist in this uh, movie. A lot of gray in here. But um, the person that we're seeing this whole movie under the eyes of is uh, Chris Taylor. And so this is the question. Why is it that he's the one that's narrating the story and not any of the other characters? Because it could have been one of the sergeants, the lieutenant. could have been the other soldiers in his platoon. But it was Chris. Yeah. 
And I, I think that the maybe the simplest way to, to think of that would be since it's not it's not fully autobiographical, but it's very influenced by Oliver Stone's own experiences in Vietnam. And so I think that the character Taylor is almost kind of an analog for his experiences. And so that's the easiest way for him to tell the story is through uh, that perspective. Do you have any other speculation on that? I mean, it has to do with that character's background, because what he mentions is that he came from a life of privilege. He purposely dropped out of school and volunteered because he thought he could make a difference in this war effort. And he talks about the other members of, of his platoon there that are coming from smaller towns. They have less privilege, yeah, almost lower didn't income. didn't have a choice. Almost didn't have a or choice. didn't have a choice, maybe. And, and probably wouldn't see the war in the same way. It's just, you have to do it. This is what we're set out to do. But with his perspective, he's got a different insight into what this war means in that for the rest of us, whenever we hear these stories, then we're going to have a better understanding of whether or not this war is just or not. Yeah. So now two other supporting uh, characters here are the two sergeants. There's Barnes and Elias. And there's this battle between these two. Like there's dividing this platoon into uh, these two groups who either want to follow Barnes and feel like he's going to be the best man to get us through this whole ordeal or it's Elias and so as an audience do we also feel that way are we having to debate who we prefer in this situation or do we feel like there's more of an antagonist there than one over the other well I mean I feel like Barnes is definitely more of an antagonist but I think that that as the audience and definitely for me watching the movie you almost go through the same transition that Taylor does where initially he admires Barnes because, you know, he's getting things done and he's keeping his squad alive. But then when he starts to see some of the moral missteps, I guess you could say, uh, and, and also seeing how Elias is trying to uphold, like to keep some kind of morality, that, that it kind of shifts his perspective some to be more in uh, the Elias camp. And so I feel like as an audience, you kind of go through that same transition as you watch uh, everything unfold. I agree with that. And at the end of the movie, Taylor is saying that it's possible that the war is just going to stay with him the rest of life. And even those two influences are going to stay with him. It's almost going to be a battle for him to just decide how he feels about both of them and how much influence both of those guys are going to have on him in the future. I it, It's kind of weird because to me, it does pre present itself that Barnes is the worst of the two. Right. But somehow Chris is still going to carry on his legacy even after he's gone from the war, it seems like. I guess they're still... He's still going to feel the influence from from him regardless, even even though Elias was more the paragon that maybe he would want to be more like, I guess, if you could say that. But uh, but yeah, he's still going to feel the, the influence from his experience he, with Barnes, I would say. He still has somewhat of understanding of what Barnes had to go through and why he makes his decisions. So yeah, there's that. Now, the real enemy should have been the North Vietnamese Army, the NVA, but clearly in this film, they are not the biggest enemy. I mean, they're they're ruthless, like they uh, impose themselves on this innocent village, they shoot the head honcho, as they say, so they can use their camp and keep all their weapons stashed in there. So they're just as bad, but really the focus is on these U.S. soldiers. Sure, and, and so, yeah, I mean, in terms of the, the conflict, the Vietnam War, of course, that was who the enemy was for the soldiers, but definitely, as the film goes, not the biggest 
antagonist that's there. I mean, it's a an ever-present danger, but not really the, the focus of where the conflict is happening. And then there was a line that Elias says, it's like, we've won all these war, uh, wars and it's maybe now time for our asses to get kicked. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so it's very indicative with this film. It's like, yeah, maybe we shouldn't win this war because we're not worth saving here. <laughs> we're, we're awful people. Next up. So what happened to you, man? I'm going to do a slight departure from this because usually I bring up uh, an actor or a filmmaker that's kind of dropped off the face of the earth. But I actually want to bring up somebody that was featured in this film and give them some recognition for what they've done in the industry. And that's Dale Dye. He was the military advisor on this film. And a little backstory on him. He was a decorated U.S. Marine veteran who fought in the Vietnam War and served as a combat correspondent, meaning that he would go into battle and document all the things that go on in these battles and then relay those stories back to the U.S. so they have an idea of kind of what's going on there. But after retiring from the Marines, he started a company called Warriors, Inc., and the company's objective is to make portrayals of war as realistic as possible. And so they would provide consultation to filmmakers on set, and they would provide uh, military training to the actors to get them prepared for the roles that they're about to take. And he was trying to offer his services to different films, and the first one that he was able to get hired on was Platoon with Oliver Stone. And so this is the first movie where he got to put in his expertise and help them recreate the uh, the damages and, and everything that happens in the Vietnam War. Through that success of that movie, he's been able to continue being an advisor to numerous films. And I'll give you a short list of what those are. Uh, Last of the Mohicans, Forrest Gump, The Thin Red Line, Band of Brothers, Tropic Thunder. He was an advisor there. And like I said, many, many others. So he's got that on lockdown just to be able to make sure that the war is presented accurately in each of these films. Yeah, one one kind of cool anecdote that I read uh, about him was because of the that sort of like shared experience, because he had been in, in Vietnam, Oliver Stone obviously had served. And so there was a time where they were filming one of the scenes and Stone was having like a PTSD episode. And so Die could relate. And so they kind of shared a moment where they were reflecting and crying and just, you know, having that shared emotion for, for like what must have been remembering just horrible things that, that they had to suffer through. And, and I don't know, I, I thought it was kind of a cool thing that to be able to have that sort of camaraderie, I guess, in that moment. Yeah, it was especially important that he had Dill die there because yeah. he could really relate to what they were trying to do with this film. Let's go to the soundtrack. I mean, there were a couple of songs that were in this film, but really the whole score was Adagio for Strings by Samuel Barber. You know, there's it's a, it's a beautiful song. It's it's very sad and you know, it, you hear it so many times. They play it so many times in these different uh, scenes. And on one hand, you think, oh, that might be overkill because they keep playing this song over and over and over. But on the other hand, you get conditioned to hear it. And then whenever you hear the song again, it just triggers all these feelings you get from watching this movie. And I think of it kind of like there's a video game that came out called The Walking Dead, uh, a Telltale game. So there's a video game based off of the comic book series, 
and there's a relationship between these two characters named Lee and Clementine. And so there's this theme song that comes every time those two are together. And it's one of the saddest video games that either of us has ever played. And so I know with you, Eric, specifically, every time you hear that song come up, it's just these moments that just flood through your Yeah, you have that sort of Pavlovian conditioning to where you hear it and, and just instantly makes you remember those those scenes, those moments between Lee and Clementine in that game, or like you're saying in the in Platoon, when you hear when you hear the song, it just you, you it, it just brings you back to to those moments that you're that you're seeing in the film. Yeah, you hear it and it's just just sad. It's yeah. just nothing but devastation, mm-hmm. tragedy. But that was effective that they just used that. It was it didn't require any other songs. There was a couple of songs like White Rabbit. Was that the right name? Oh of the yeah, the one when they're when they're doing when they're drugs, yeah. drugs. <laughs> Oki from Muskogee, and a couple of others. But that just tries to add to like the the era that this takes place in. But it's all about adagio for strings. I will always be sad every time I hear that. <laughs> Best scene, worst scene. Well, in in a, a movie that a lot of times what you're watching is not easy to watch. Uh, there are not a lot of scenes where where it's like. You know, when we talk about the action movies and it's like the stuff that you're waiting for it to happen. But there is the scene when Elias is dying and in the arms in the air from the cover. Uh, that that scene is one where you're just waiting for it to happen. You're waiting for, for Willem Dafoe to strike the pose. And it's like, oh, he's about to do it. He's about to do yeah. it. It's like it is one of those moments. Uh, it's just such an iconic pose. And, and so you're definitely waiting for that to happen. So I had that. Um, and then as far as I don't know if it's the best scene in the movie, but one of the scenes that I always really like is when King gets to go home. Yes. I feel like the the emotion there where he realizes that that he's not being messed with, that he's actually going to get on a helicopter and get out of there and then uh you know all the other guys are happy for him and and the way that it plays out uh uh Taylor walks him to the helicopter and everything. I just think it's a cool moment. I did like that scene too because no one had any animosity. I mean, they might have been jealous that he got to go home, but no one's like upset about it everybody felt good for that person to be able to get it out alive and they can only hope that they will be able to have that same outcome um for my best scene i wouldn't say it's the most satisfying but i think it's the most emotional most powerful scene in this film and it's at the very end whenever they attack this village that's been there a thousand years they just start burning everything down again adagio for strings starts playing a couple of them are trying to rape girls and Taylor tries to intervene, intervene and get yeah. a, get away from that. But just the combination of the music and everything burning down. And then also think about everything else that just led up to that moment. It just reached its peak right there. And it was just very sad situation to see all of this culminate into this destruction of the village. So I, I tried to hold back some tears and I couldn't, but that was probably out of anything, the most powerful sequence there. And now for the worst scene, I think we might be both in agreement that the worst scene in this entire film is where they start to bully and harass the special needs boy yeah. that they find in the village yeah it's kind of going a different direction with worse scene it's not because it's like a bad scene like that's out it wasn't of place badly in the movie executed or something no. like that and there might be a couple moments like that in the movie but for the most part it's not that there's a a scene that's so bad because it doesn't fit but uh it's worse scene because it's just hard to watch yeah. and um you know you're watching 
uh, Charlie Sheen's character, Taylor's shooting at the ground under the, the guy's feet and, you know, make him dance and they're just tormenting him. And he's got like, you see the look on his face and, and then uh, Bunny, when he when he just cracks open his skull, it's that for basically for no good reason. It, it's tough to watch. So I would agree with you. For me, that's where I would go with worse for this. I admit, I think the first time that I watched that scene, I may have laughed and it's not supposed to be a funny moment. I think I just laughed out of pure discomfort. Yeah. And it was just interesting that that was the, uh, with the emotion and the rage that Taylor was carrying, like he felt the only thing he could do for him was just to make him dance and shoot a gun up to his feet. But I, I just felt it was just, yeah, it was just difficult to watch because it's one thing to torment innocent people but someone who's already at a disadvantage like that yeah the and that that whole sequence in the village when they start destroying everything and you know the one woman gets shot and and just all of that is it's it's pretty tough and uh and, but really that that specific part of it with with that guy was it's it's hate crime territory yeah, right there yeah, yeah. real really uncomfortable to, to watch even though you know it's a, it's a movie it's still it still makes you feel that that discomfort. It's really you know that it's just an awful moment, and you feel it when you're when you're seeing it. Uh, one thing that that's kind of connected in a way I did that uh, Charlie Sheen and um, which one of the played Bunny um, why Kevin Dillon Dillon that's mm-hmm. right. Uh, I did, and I hope it's true because it's a cool story. <laughs> if it if it is the kid that they're tormenting there had uh, cataracts and his family was poor and couldn't afford the surgery and and after the scene charlie sheen and dylan they felt really bad and and also felt bad for him because he couldn't afford the surgery and so i guess they pooled money together to help him get the surgery it's what i read don't know if it's true i'd like to think i'd like to believe that too (laughs) because then at least (laughs) you know for the discomfort of that scene at least you can imagine like that guy in real life getting something kind of good out of it yeah i i hope so uh, best line, worst line. With best line, uh, there's a couple of things that kind of stand out to me. I, I like, you know, when Taylor's trying to, to reconcile how everything's gone and and he goes through a kind of a speech where at one point he says, people like Elias get wasted. People like Barnes just go on making up the rules any way they want. And so what do we do? We sit in the middle and suck on it. He's like really feeling that he doesn't have a an influence on it, I guess. I, and it's... I, I just feel like that's a kind of a telling moment. Uh, I also liked, uh, it's not a line that's spoken, but if you look close at the helmet that Charlie Sheen is wearing, and his, the words that are written on there, it says, when I die, bury me upside down so the world can kiss my ass. Mm-hmm. It's a very Charlie Sheen sounding line. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I also have two contenders for best line and i just think they're the funniest of anything that came out of this film so one of them i think it was crawford and he says that o'neill's got his nose so far up top's ass he's got to be pinocchio (laughs) i just like whenever they make the analogies like that that's pretty funny Mm -hmm. and then the other one is after taylor uh shoots down some members of the nva he kills two and he's so excited about it and he says ho chi Minh sucks dead dick (laughs) (laughs) And it's just funny because now he feels like he's actually contributing to this war effort. And then he kind of channels his inner teenage high school where 
in this moment where it's life and death, he has a moment where he could just celebrate and says this. Yeah. And I just thought it was very funny. Yeah. I, I have one other line that kind of stands out for me. Uh, you know, we were talking when we were talking worst scene about how uncomfortable it is to watch everything that they're doing in the village. And you've got some definite moral lines that are being crossed and you have the the soldiers that are trying to rape the girls mm-hmm. and and uh, Taylor is breaking it up and he's she's a human being, man. Fuck you. <laughs> and yeah. Wondering why he would be trying to break up their fun. And uh, so that line kind of sticks with me that he's trying to have some some humanity where you know, in in the situation they're in, it's that line gets blurred, and it's obviously some people are crossing it, and um, so I always remember that one too. So the lines that you picked were lines that were the dialogue was more meaningful. There was a message in there, and then I just went out and picked the funniest lines out of this. <laughs> sure, because those exchanges were yeah, funny. I like different. The yeah, it's a different way of looking at that one, I guess. So, so what about uh, worst line for me? Every line that has a racial slur in it, I could consider a worse line, but I think it was absolutely needed. You just can't. I don't think if you make a movie now taking place in Vietnam War, I don't know if you could say some of those slurs. I, know, I but... feel like if you're trying to be accurate to the way that things were, I feel like it it fits. It's uncomfortable, but I don't I don't know that it's out of place necessarily you know obviously it's not language that we like or would want to use or hear used but i think that it in in the film it fits so if you're doing it in the right way it's not just gratuitous use of a slur that it's actually because it's specific to a moment because with the uh, the vietnamese with the asians they do use a slur because they are trying to demean dehumanize almost yeah, yeah. And I don't know about the N-word, that was questionable, but I'll just say that if you try to do that now, there's some social yeah. justice warriors that are going to be outraged and calling a boycott a film. I just still feel like it was a believable situation when you heard it used in the film, though. Like I said, I it, wasn't, it wasn't just, let's throw it in there to be edgy or something like that. I think it was it was really a believable thing. And For so, the time, that was... So while it's uncomfortable, kind of like the same thing we were going with worst lines, I get you. I, I hear you with that, where it's, it's you know not something that you really want to be hearing, but... Uh, but I do think that it that it fit in the scene. So I do actually have a worse line here. And yeah. I'll read the whole quote. And I think this was uh, Ra that said it to Taylor. Uh, Elias didn't ask you to fight his battles for him. And if there's a heaven, and God I hope there is, I know he's sitting up there drunk as a fucking monkey and smoking shit. Because he done left his pains down here. That's a great line. Except the part where he's talking about smoking shit. Because that just broke... <laughs> the flow everything ross says is pretty eloquent in a way yeah i'm kind of i'm with you on that one because i think that that it's going something somewhere where it's really meaningful and it's not that it isn't still even with that part but there's something about it that just rings strangely about that part of the line yeah if he could have been more specific with what that was if he could have said oh he's smoking weed or <laughs> with gandhi or something know if like that, that would have worked either but it, it does it does strike a strange it was just a little off that's the only reason why there I yeah i i agree with you on that one and what about you i don't have any i we've kind of covered on mine i don't really have anything else for that section okay then true facts about platoon true facts about the platoon I mentioned Dale Dye 
uh, working on this film and what they did prior to filming, uh, they did an intensive training course. Um, I, I saw different numbers. It was either two weeks or 30 days, but they went through all this training to get prepared for shooting this film and getting prepared for doing these, these active battles. And then starting from that point on, I just, I mean, I always heard Oliver Stone is a difficult director to work with, but he was particularly awful in filming Platoon. And there was a purpose for it. It wasn't that he's just generally a jerk. It's just he was trying to break down all these actors as much as possible, make them extremely uncomfortable, make them irate, because that was going to help them in their performances on the film. All right, another thing that I found out here, some of the guys had marble packs attached to their helmets, and those were actually custom created so that they look exactly like the labels that existed back in 1967 where this film was supposed to be taking place. I went down a little bit of a rabbit hole. This film was shot in the Philippines, and they weren't sure if they were going to be able to continue filming because there was a, like a political upheaval the uh, president at the time his name is Ferdinand Marcus he was actually in on his way out and getting booted and so I was starting to read like why Ferdinand Marcos was getting kicked out of his own country and so you read that he was the president acted like a dictatorship throughout his time and he stole billions of dollars from his own country he and his wife were incredibly awful people and I think they still got away cleanly because he got to exile in Hawaii. So nothing really bad came from him. I think his wife is still under trial, but I don't think anything's going to come from that. So it was just an interesting lesson in history that I never Yeah, when they got school. there, it was like days before he was finally deposed, mm -hmm. I guess. And, and then they had to bribe the government to still let them film the movie. Yes. Some interesting circumstances there. Uh, one other thing I have is... We talk about Willem Dafoe's iconic pose. pose where he has the arms raised. That was actually inspired by a photograph mm -hmm. taken in 1968 by Art Greenspan. And uh, one publication, I think it was referring to the Art Greenspan picture. It's the 13th most iconic war photo of all time. I can think of a few others that would be more popular, mm -hmm. like the... Iwo Jima sure. flag and some others, but that was interesting. Did you find anything yeah, else? Yeah, yeah, some interesting stuff that, that I came across. Uh, well, first of all, the, the this was the first major motion picture uh, written and directed by a Vietnam vet. That's kind of interesting. And then there's there's a scene in in the movie toward the end where, where Ra, he reaches in the pocket of one of the NVA soldiers who's dead, and he takes something from him. And I, I'm, I remember watching and I'm like, well, what did he actually take? And so I was looking and so what he's supposed to be taking is heroin. Um, and so the soldiers actually at the time, the, the, the soldiers would use heroin as a painkiller. And obviously a lot of them became addicted. And so Ra, uh, as we know from some previous scenes that, that they're into their drugs, uh, is taking heroin from him and that's why he kind of looks around nervously after he takes it from him 
Um, and so I thought that was that was an interesting fact there. And then uh, the last thing that I have for this one that I thought was kind of cool is that the film when they were when they were filming it that it was done sequentially for the most part, like almost in order that it happens in the story, and that that was done for a reason because you got actual real emotion from some of the characters when they leave. So like when King gets to go home, he's actually going home. Or uh, and then there was some stuff like where when a character would die, they would go home too. You don't see that on screen, but apparently there was a big celebration. But yeah, with Charlie Sheen, but like yeah, Charlie Sheen. Like, he has a catharsis because he's like, okay, his character, his time there is over, but then he's also excited that yeah, he doesn't yeah. have to be and, on set and he said, And he said that it was real emotion, that he was really happy to be uh, in that moment, like that he knew he was going to be able to go home. <laughs> and something I forgot to ask earlier when we were talking about the heroes and villains, did you ever feel like, you know, everybody had some kind of resolution and did you feel like any of those guys, did they all get the satisfying ending or the ending that they deserve? Like there wasn't, surprisingly, I didn't find anybody there where it was like, oh, they got away with something. I feel like everybody got kind of what was coming to them. Even the ones that got injured, at least they survived. I'd like to think that. Yeah, I didn't I didn't feel like there was any particularly unjust outcome. You know, you had the 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 one that comes to mind when you're talking about like what is left for them at the end. You have uh, Red who hides under a body in the final battle and he's kind of an asshole through the movie. And so you're thinking he's coming out unscathed. And, you know, hiding like a like a coward in some ways. And although is it cowardice to just want to survive? I don't know. That's another question for another time, I guess. But uh, but then in the end, because his his sergeant died, then he's given that position. And so he has, he has to, to stay. Assume. And so it's almost like he, you know, he was he's just trying to survive. He wants to get out of there. Uh, and then now he's got to stay there for who knows how much longer now he's in charge of the platoon. So. Um, yeah, I don't think that there were really any that were kind of unsatisfying conclusions. There's certain things that are kind of left open. You don't really know. Yeah, I'd like to think that anybody that survived even through injuries, that they lived a long and prosperous <laughs> life after. So I, I, that makes me sleep better at night. So Lerner and Big Harold and a few others, I think they survived. They came out of it alive. I'm okay with that. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, suspender disbelief. I don't have much here. I just kept reading a lot about, um, a lot of items that were in place in the film. It's funny because you, I just mentioned the Marlboro packs that they were custom made to look like they were 1987. There were so many other products placed in there and a couple of songs too that didn't even exist in 1967. Yeah. Yeah. You had, so for the attention to detail to make the Marlboro pack look, authentic to the time but they didn't care about the Budweiser cans or whatever else that were definitely not from from that time or certain weapons and things like that there's some little stuff so it's, it is funny that they wanted something to look another thing about the cigarettes too that I saw there's there's one like little continuity thing I forget the character that's wearing the cigarette pack on his mm -hmm. on his helmet and in one scene you see the Marlboro pack and then it like cuts away for a second. And then when it comes back to him, it's not a Marlboro pack anymore. It's like a pack of cools. Yeah. Or yeah. something like that. So that's kind of funny too. Yeah. Um, <laughs> something, a line that was said, I think it was Junior who was in the river trying to get some water in his canteen. And someone tells him, don't drink it. You'll get you malaria. And Junior's like, well, I hope I get it. Well, you can't transmit malaria through 
drinking water it's got to be from a, a mosquito bite so yeah, there's some kind of insect bite i had that one too drinking water could get you any number of <laughs> illnesses or problems. maladies but yeah. but malaria would not be one of them yeah did you find anything else i had i only had one more if you look at the cover of the case you look at the the dog tags for they're supposed to be elias's dog tags mm -hmm. and um, all these guys in the movie are supposed to be army Yes. Uh, but on the dog tag, it says USMC. And, and so I don't know why they had USMC on there when it was supposed to be Army. But uh, yeah, that's just one thing that I came across. And so I had to look at the cover because I had never really examined it that closely. And sure enough, sure enough, it says USMC on there. So you know what? They're also missing dog tags. And I don't know if this has changed over the years, but dog tags that I've seen now, they also put their religious affiliation on there. So in the case that they pass away, then they can handle the 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 body correctly and provide the appropriate service that's yeah. in line with their religious affiliation. So I don't know if that was the case in the sixties, but that is like it would have been, but I don't know. Yeah, I don't really know. If they were to remake the movie today, what do you think would change in the film? I just would really hate to imagine the idea of them remaking this one at all. I don't think that there's really anything that you would do that would improve upon it. Even the visuals. That's one thing that struck me watching the movie really this time was how good everything, all the scenes, how how the realism of it from, you know, seeing the, the explosions and things that they did. And, and I would feel like in a lot of ways you would just overuse technology to make everything bigger and more explodey and, and it would just take away from, from what you really want from the, the film. So yeah, so as far as what would change, I, I don't even really want to imagine it. Yeah, I don't think there's a need for a change. If they would want to remake this film, I think they might want to put in a different message in the story overall. But what I've noticed is there are tons of movies that have been made about all the different wars that have ever existed. There are a number of movies specifically about the Vietnam War. And so they all have the same message. I feel like most of them are anti-war, particularly with the Vietnam War occupation. Nobody, the reason why this film was made in particular actually is, is it's a response to a movie that John Wayne made called The Green Berets. And that had a much more rosy optimistic view of the war and that they were doing a good thing going out there to fight and really that wasn't the case at all i feel like if they're gonna make another movie about vietnam they'll make a brand new movie have it a different perspective but the sentiment is going to be the same is that this is an unjust war and it's devastating to anybody that's participating in it so in this instance i feel like there would be no reason for them to remake it yeah yeah, and as much as with classics, you always feel like you wouldn't want them to touch it again. Like this one, I just can't see them making it any better. There's no way. It's, it's, there's no reason to either. That's all the uh, topics we have there. Is there anything else you wanted to add, like general reflection of of this film? I mean, I just said earlier, it it, it really holds up in that the feeling like, you know, those frantic scenes from through the eyes of someone in the infantry the chaos of everything that's going on uh, just really stands out again. And it had been I, over a decade since I had watched this movie. And, and so, you know, to have it come back again and, and remember and see all of those things, it's just a really striking visual movie. I, uncomfortable. Uh, I mean, it strikes all those notes. It's just a really, really good, good movie. I do have some final thoughts myself. I 
don't like to be one to be preaching, getting on a high horse, but I did have something that I want to share with you guys today. As I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, it is Memorial Day. Ever since this country was formed almost 250 years ago, millions of men and women were willing to risk their lives in order to protect our civil liberties and give us civilians the opportunity to pursue our own individual dreams. At the very least, I'd ask that you take a few moments to remember these fallen soldiers and be thankful for the freedoms and advantages that you have today. Having said that, I've seen a lot of people lately complain that the government and private businesses are infringing upon their civil liberties and inalienable rights. There's some merit to these grievances, but I would consider which battles are worth fighting for. Maybe think about what you can do to make this nation a better place. Even though you may not have fought in a war, you still have a chance to make this place better than when you found it. And so I urge you to be kind to others, be charitable to those less fortunate, and for God's sake, wear a face mask if it's required. It's not that hard. Let me hear your thoughts. You can reach me at semifieldwriter at gmail.com. I have a website, semifieldwriter.com. Twitch, Instagram, at semifieldwriter. Eric, thanks for joining me today. Yeah, no problem. I hope all of you have a wonderful Memorial Day weekend. Relax, but again, remember those lives that we have lost. I will talk to you again in a couple weeks. Until then, take care.